Hey everybody, I'm Rob McMichael, and along with Tim Whitaker and Jordan Renault, this is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived, and how we can better represent him and his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little bit more about us, let's get into the episode for this week. Today on episode number 46, we have Russ Wills on to discuss his experience in going from the Protestant evangelical side of Christianity to Catholicism. We wanted to get his perspective on the deal breakers that most evangelicals are taught against Catholicism and see what we can learn. While we hadn't the time to cover every topic, we had an open and honest discussion on salvation and works, praying to saints, infant baptism, and much more. Let's join the conversation for this week. Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. I am your host, Tim Whitaker, joined here with my other co-host, Jordan Rob, as always. Hello, gentlemen. What's up? Hey, Tim. Um, hello, Rob. Um, so we started this episode a little bit later tonight because I'm going to tell the story. I think it's funny. I FaceTimed you about maybe 30 minutes ago because I had a question for you. It turns out you were in the Taco Bell drive through which then gave me a Taco Bell craving, which then my <laughs> wife overheard me talking about the Taco Bell craving, which then I had to run out to Taco Bell to get such said Taco Bell craving. Um, so we we'll like tonight. We, we got out of the line for Taco Bell, and I immediately received a text from Tim that he's in line at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and the Taco Bell I stopped that I had to wait like I think 15 minutes in drive through which for a uh, first world American is way too long to wait for food. So <laughs> it was unreasonable. Which is totally understandable because at church tonight we had a missionary come in who lives and works in Zambia. And he's like, oh, yeah, we had a conference and we had to drive 15 hours in the car and then get in a canoe and boat there. Some people came by bike. Some people walked. And I'm just like, my router was slow this morning. (laughs) I had to restart my computer for this podcast to happen. I thought you were going to say there was a missionary that lived and worked at Taco Bell. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I have, I've had Taco Bell cravings. I actually went just the other week and I always regret them. (laughs) Well, that's how it is with fast food for me. Um, Sometimes I don't though with other fast foods. Like I like Wendy's a lot and I don't regret Wendy's. I tend to really like, if I'm hungry for fast food, I trick my mind and tell myself, oh, it's like a one-time special treat. So go all out. Which (laughs) when you do that like nightly, isn't really a one-time special treat anymore. (laughs) But I regret it. I regret it. I do. I also looked into, I was so lazy. I was just, I was debating to have Grubhub deliver the food, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I, um, when I saw the cost, it was like an extra like 30% between like tax and tip and delivery fee. And it was an hour wait. So instead I drove the literal two minutes down the road to get it myself. So that's my, uh, confession, I guess to start the podcast off. Uh, it was a good one. Um, anyway, well, listen, everyone, thanks for tuning in and listening. We have a very, I think, um, unique show for sure. We are joined by, um, one of my professors from back in the day, Russ. Um, Hey Russ, how's it going, man? 
Great. Great. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, Russ was a professor. It had to be about eight years ago. I'm guessing eight or nine years ago. I took a Old Testament theology class. It blew my mind, and I still talk about that class to this day. If that's anything to say about your amazing teaching, Russ, it was. It truly was awesome. I mean, I think you talked for like three hours at a clip, and it was just riveting. So great job. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. You definitely shifted so much of. Well, you just really expanded. What was that? Messed up your thinking and, you know. Yeah. Um, a modern day Rob Bell, so to speak. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do remember um, really like coming away out of those classes just with a much more bigger picture view of like, oh, like this is what's happening in this specific book or in a specific situation. So it was really great. In fact, I'm not sure if you've ever listened to uh, the Bible Project before. Yeah. I like um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I whenever I listen to Tim talk, I think about you a ton. I'm like, this reminds me so much of Russ. But me, uh, Rob, and Jordan are really we're into their stuff. We think it's like phenomenal. So every once in a while, they'll teach something on there, and I'll say, I'm not the only heretic who thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, when uh, one of the first episodes we got into was the uh, the idea of God or gods, the term Elohim and yeah. spiritual realm and I really, in the first episode, I'm like, am I like a heretic for this? But luckily, the other guy in the episode, I think his name is John, he pretty much speaks on behalf of people like me who are like, I don't know, Tim, this sounds heretical. And Tim's like, don't worry, it's not, we'll get there, you know, but very cool stuff. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. Um, listen, I figure might as well hop right into uh, the, the theme for this episode. I think there's a lot to get to. So um, for our listeners, sake, let me give some context here. So um, our last episode, we had our good buddy Paul on, Paul Guttiker, and he came on and uh, talked a ton about um, Sabbath and the idea of rest. And Paul is part of the Anglican movement, which um, they're, I think, a little more in some of their like beliefs, a little more traditional in the sense of like um, – like um, their service is a little more traditional and what it looks like. And they, on the surface, at least it seems like, I'm sure it's maybe not this far, but it seems very uh, similar to Catholicism. It's like a, it's like a Catholic mass almost, uh, almost like how they do their, their, um, their services. And, you know, they follow um, Advent and Lent and, you know, they follow the church calendar. And uh, that got me uh, thinking, I'm like, wow, I'm like, you know, that, that, it'd be great to have Paul come back on and talk about some of this stuff. But then I thought about, It'd be really cool to have someone come on who maybe was at one point um, in the Protestant movement, but maybe since then has maybe moved a little more towards Catholicism and be able to ask them questions about some of the differences. And then that's when Russ popped into my head. So I remember, Russ, that you talked about um, in one of your classes that your wife was Catholic. Is that correct? Great. Yeah. Yeah. And how you were um, kind of being more and more exposed to uh, the Catholic tradition and how that made you uh, kind of not, I don't know, maybe this is the right word, uh, rethink some things. And uh, you know, you've kind of shifted your faith journey over the years in a different way towards more of a Catholic mindset. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, All right, cool. This is great. So at some point I could, I'll give you a little background. Yeah. Context too. Um, yeah. I started out my, um, I guess in high school, I started following Jesus early in high school. came from a very conservative evangelical background. Uh, went to college and got in a Christian group there that was very conservative evangelical. And I learned all the reasons that Catholics are heretics and they're all going to hell. And the Pope is the Antichrist and, you know, all, it's all that stuff. Um, I actually, at one point as an undergrad, like 800 years ago, I started dating a girl who was Catholic. 
And a bunch of uh, friends were very concerned and actually told me a million reasons why that's a bad idea. And I didn't know that I could think for myself yet at that point. So I ended up breaking up with her. And, you know, it was a big ordeal. And um, God's great sense of humor, I ended up marrying a Catholic woman. So um, <laughs> kind of came full circle there. But, uh, yeah, it was um, – if I had to label myself now, which I hate doing, but if I had to, I would say I'm an evangelical. But I probably make a better Catholic than an evangelical. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've been to uh, my wife's church for quite a few years now, and it's, I have a lot of respect for it. That's um – I mean, for me, that's very a very unique perspective on everything. You know, like I know you teach at at, at a Christian university, and uh, so you're you're pretty steeped, and I would imagine at least like the current trends in like um, evangelicalism and uh, Protestantism. But then the church you attend is Catholic. So like, what a different dynamic completely. Um, I think that's really cool. You know, and I also think it's interesting because like you. You know, my parents, uh, my, my, my mom grew up very Catholic, then converted to Christianity. So, you know, obviously I got a lot of, um, of like my mom's view of Catholicism, you know, and, you know, the kind of what you said, like, well, now they're really Christians and like the Catholic Church is kind of lost. And obviously the Catholic Church has all kinds of scandals happening. We're all aware of that. They're very big, you know, with um, with child abuse scandals and stuff. So by no means, I'm sure you would agree that the Catholic church is perfect. However, I thought this would be a cool episode to be able to maybe ask you some questions coming from like an evangelical point of view, uh, and kind of get like some of your perspective on it, um, on the Catholic side, because I, I think sometimes we can easily fall into our own, like, well, my view of this other thing that I'm not a part of is accurate because of what I heard from someone, but I'm never going to go to a service. I'm never going to really ask a priest. I'm just kind of going to assume that this is the only correct way of viewing it. But I figured what a good way but to go right to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and get you can get your view. So um, does that sound good to you? I think he just called me a horse, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably did. So my apologies. Uh, don't don't tell your wife. But um, so I wanna start I wanna start with a few of the big ones right off the bat. So one of the one of the things I've always been taught is that Catholics have a view of a grace plus works view of salvation. Um, the idea of that, yes, Christ on the cross, but also you kind of have to earn your way into heaven and you can never be fully sure of uh, salvation because, you know, your works have something to do with that. Um, I, you know, I think in my head, it's kind of the way I see it is like the view of like how a Christian would say like faith without your work, uh, without works is dead, meaning like they kind of validate the what's already happening on the inside but then i've been told that catholics have more of a view of no it's really a combination of your works plus grace that gets you quote unquote saved so yeah. what, what would your response to something like that be that you hit the uh, big long one first yes yeah. <laughs> you're right that's the hard one but um martin luther hated the book of james because you know he seemed to contradict everything about grace and faith and salvation in that sense uh, really where it comes down to is our understanding of what salvation means. So all through the Old Testament, salvation was very literal. You're being saved from some outside thing, whether it's uh, illness or an army or famine or whatever. Uh, it's New Testament, it seems to be used differently. But uh, what I learned uh, somewhat recently, a couple years ago from a colleague, is um, the word in Greek translated salvation there are two main words, and I'll butcher them if I try to say them, but it's um, sozo and soterion, I, I believe are the words. Um, well, one is a root of the other. It comes from the other. And what I learned that really blew me away was it means to be made whole. 
it doesn't mean my sins are forgiven and I go to heaven. Like we kind of throw it around. It, it literally means to be made whole. Mm-hmm. And so it has a lot to do with the idea of shalom. So um, without giving like this whole big long spiel, hopefully I uh, mm-hmm. did a study in Genesis. Um, I was really concerned for the church, just felt like the church was not really alive. Somebody asked me, well, what would it look like to be alive? I said, well, that's a good question. And I puzzled over it for a very long time. Finally, God smacked me on the head and said, if you want to see what life is supposed to look like, I showed you. It's in Genesis 1 and 2. Oh, like it just makes sense, obviously. And uh, there was the breath of God. There was intimacy with God. And those are the obvious ones. But for the first time, I think I realized that God created the physical world to be pleasing. He wants us to enjoy it. And the word pleasure is like a life-changing type of pleasure, not just I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And um, so the physical world is part of that. And there's human relationship. It has to be part of it. Uh, That shook me up a little bit too, because I was always taught it's me and God. And the goal in life is to die and go to heaven so I can be face-to-face with God. Adam was face-to-face with God in the Garden of Eden, and God said, this is not good. This perfect, sinless world. And it, Adam wasn't fulfilled till he had another person with him. And God said, make a city, you know, keep reproducing and have a, a big community. And then the last thing was God gave them work to do. And I just never think of work as being part of perfection. Mm-hmm. So if those are the things that God made and intended life to be, then to be made whole means you have all of those things. So if we have faith and we're going to heaven and we're not doing the work that God called us to, like Ephesians, you've created us uh, beforehand to do, you know, specifically for certain works. And uh, if we're not doing those things that he's called us to, we're not going to be completely whole. Our, our salvation isn't complete. So I think that's kind of how I reconcile this huge topic that we could probably talk about for three days. <laughs> Yes, I feel like in that one uh, statement, you hit on things that I'm like, wait, that's a whole podcast episode. Wait, that's a whole podcast episode. You know? um, so, okay, so I, I think I'm kind of tracking. So, you know, so continue on with that train of thought there. So essentially what I got so far is, you know, the term salvation is a bigger, more holistic term than how we kind of boil it down to between me, my sins are forgiven, I'm no longer, I'm no longer going to hell, I'm going to heaven instead. And while that maybe is certainly part of it, that word has more meaning scripturally. Right. It's much bigger. And today it's partly because of the Enlightenment thinking in the West and, and how we're influenced by Greek thought. Uh, we tend to just think that the goal of life, it's all about me, right? And it's, you know, who are you? What, what are, you always talk about what I do for a living, um, my interests, it's all me. In the Middle East, it's always the family. Like, who are you? I'm so-and-so's son from this area. And when you think about it in that sense, uh, the, the idea of salvation changes. It's not me going to heaven. In the early church, it was us together serving the Lord, serving our king. And uh, part of that, um, if you ask today, uh, what, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Today, most people would say, so that I can go to heaven. And back then, people actually said to defeat the devil and his works, which is straight from scripture. And uh, us going to heaven is part of that, but a small piece of something much bigger and more beautiful. And I think we get that that sense, even in 
the New Testament writers, what they've written about in the completion of our faith or the maturity of a believer is really that idea of completion or being whole. And I I think that definitely has that idea. And we've talked about kind of that topic of the the kingdom movement or the church movement being very me-centered, even even in that way and um you know how we turn salvation into well this is my ticket to heaven well you're you're a very small part of god's plan and yes it's great praise the lord that we are all part of that small plan and one day we will get to spend eternity with him but that's not the end all be all of things the end all be all is that um that in all things he might have the preeminence. That's that's what this thing is whole about, is about the Lord, not about me. Right. The rest, so, when, when, you were, <clears throat> sorry, when you were saying that uh, salvation is like a, a, a broader concept and kind of includes those other things, would you kind of say that um, if you were to look at the terms of like justification, and sanctification is that kind of what you're saying is like salvation is kind of something that uh, a term that should m- more include both of those. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, to be, uh, how to phrase it. Um, I don't know for sure. I don't understand for sure exactly what the Catholic church teaches about the balance there, mm-hmm. but I do know based on from conversations I've had with Catholics who really get it and are living out their faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, very clear Jesus is the only way to be forgiven. Jesus forgave our sins. We don't earn uh, forgiveness or salvation. Hmm. Uh, confession, actually, uh, I've always had the view that you go to confession to get forgiven. And yeah. um, it, in the Catholic Church, I've learned that confession, it's not so much about being forgiven as it is restoring your relationship with God. And uh, you know, we could argue about dynamics of that as well but it's really a, you know it's not like say four hail marys and you're forgiven it's actually the um the rosary is, we can talk about that later too but yeah. the rosary is actually a way to focus on the lord and one of the things the priest is doing is saying get yourself focused on the lord again by praying and that's going to help you overcome these sins and it's almost like a therapy session in some ways where the priest is really trying to help you to overcome certain sins can you go into a little more detail around like what you just mentioned with confession, uh, confession? You said it's not so much about being forgiven, but more about uh, your relationship being made right with God again. Like what, what would the difference be? Because in my head, they're kind of synonymous. Like I'm forgiven, so it's made right again. Um, can you give us a little more like, you know, um, detail on that? Yeah. Um, my furnace just came on down here in my dungeon. So is that, <laughs> you still hear me right? You're good. Yeah, you're fine. Awesome. Um, yeah. So it's, now, here's one of the areas where I don't completely agree with the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, and actually, uh, just for context, I've considered becoming Catholic. If I were born Catholic, I probably would consider myself Catholic. But because I wasn't, I would have to stand before the church and say that I adhere to all the, Catholic, all the teachings of the Catholic Church. And I, just mm-hmm. in good conscience, I can't do that. So there are some areas of disagreement that I have. Um, one of them is my view of salvation is that Jesus died on our on the cross for all our sins, past, present, future. And it's not about when you confess your sins. Um, in the Catholic Church, they I'm just not clear on what they teach because I know they believe that, and yet there's this element of um, you know going to the priest and all. Uh, so going to the priest is about 
um, restoring your relationship with God. I would say personally, from my background, our relationship with God, the sin doesn't, you know, sin isn't what keeps us from God. It's ourselves and sin can cause us to, you know, not want to be with God, but the relationship is still open. So I think that's one of my areas of difference there. Mm-hmm. Good. Rob Jordan, you guys have any, do you want to add to that? No. Yeah, cool. I, mean, I definitely see the, there, there's a nuanced difference there where um, forgiveness as a whole could be offered at salvation. But just like, you know, I'll use my kids in this example. If my son does something wrong and um, he knows that I disapprove, he wants to avoid me for that amount of time when I'm Elijah, where are you? And it's much, our relationship hasn't changed. He, it's still father, son. Uh, the love is still there, but the relationship has changed because something came in just to, to hinder it. And not from my end, but more from his end. I can't go near dad. He's going to be mad. I did something that he wouldn't approve of, but then the the confession as it were is hey dad i'm sorry and the relationship is immediately restored and the love was never lost the the status was never lost but maybe just the enjoyment of it was lost for a period of time until what what was offending had been taken away and maybe makes that, a lot of sense. yeah yeah and then the confession is uh in the catholic church the priest is sort of seen as um representing god in the sense of uh, like Old Testament, the priests would offer the sacrifices to and go to God on behalf of the people and the prophets. God talks to the prophet and they go to the people. It's similar to that where the priest is, his position is to kind of represent Jesus. So it's a way of confessing your sins to Jesus to restore that relationship. I, I think he nailed it. Um, with the, uh, I've learned more about God from my kids than I've done yeah. any. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. That's what Rob always says. <laughs> Maybe there's something to it. That's just his way of making sure we know, Tim, that he knows more than us. Because yeah. <laughs> we don't have kids yet. And Rob does. I know, so I know more than you on. ever could. <laughs> um, you know, Russell, let me ask you this around the same topic here. So you know, I think if there are uh, most of our listening audience, all like five of them are Christians, you know, they <laughs> identify as like evangelical most likely. And I can hear a lot of them probably screaming into their car stereo or wherever, wherever they're listening. Well, and then quoting all these like scriptures of like, by grace are you saved? You know, the very common ones that we all know, you know, by heart, you know, um, for by grace are you saved through faith, it's not of work, or something a man should boast, you know, all that kind of stuff. So like, what do you, what, what would your response to that be? And I think, you know, I'm guessing part of it's got to be that one of the dangers I think we have in like this, like you said, post-enlightenment, Western thought, I would say even like post like very extremely reformed thought is like this like picking of scripture completely out of like its context and like just reading it like black and white and like super literal and just taking it at face value when it's like very convenient. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if, if that's fair to apply to a situation like this where there is a lot of scripture obviously from Paul about how it's all about how we're saved through grace. Right. Yeah. And I, I still think it comes down to what does it mean to be saved? And um, I think, you know, in that conversation, it's the first thing I would ask is how do you define salvation? And if it really is about being made whole, you can't be whole without works. Um, as far as confession and things, 
because you know it's really you don't confess to get forgiveness um, you confess to restore the relationship um, and it's a way to come back to God um, one of the things that I I don't understand yet is why it specifically has to be a priest um, mm. you know I think there's a lot of wisdom in it but I don't you know I don't see it as a requirement uh, part of Catholic tradition that I that I have questions about but uh, still it's you don't you know, if you find Catholic people who really understand their faith and are really living out their faith, I don't think they would ever say that you have to work for your salvation. Mm. I think it's uh, it's definitely acknowledged that Jesus has forgiven us. It's him on the cross that does the job. And, and you know, actually, when I teach, I'm always teaching about complete, full forgiveness. You know, Jesus died once for all. And students always embrace that. And then I say, therefore, if you're sinning too much, it doesn't disqualify you from heaven because all that sin is forgiven. And the students jump all over me saying, well, but wait, don't you have to stop sinning? Don't you have to repent? And if you don't repent, then you're in trouble. Like, well, that goes back to works. You know, I don't think a lot of Protestants and evangelicals fully believe that it's only by faith and not works. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you were, you were talking about, you know, even your disagreement or unsurety about um, have it having to be a priest for confession, that was exactly what was running through my mind. And I'm sure our listeners are thinking the same thing. They're going, hey, what? But guys, what about First uh, Timothy chapter 2? And there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And what about um, Paul's calling us the priesthood of all believers? What What are we supposed to do with that? And uh, I guess that's something that you also don't really agree with the Catholic Church on on that point. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd even say I don't agree as much as I don't understand it yet. Okay, that's and, and I, you know, once I fully understand it, I may or may not agree. Mm-hmm. Um, probably won't, based on what I know now. But you know, <laughs> I've been surprised before. So yeah. Okay. Hey, really quick, do you guys feel like a clicking sound going on somewhere? Yeah, that's my dungeon. I was going to uh, say, I think it's the furnace uh, flapper. Fine, as long as we're all clear on that. <laughs> really no problem. Um, all right, well, I think that's, you know, at least a fair, um, at least answer for people to at least think about at a minimum. I think you raised a lot of other questions, <laughs> you know, that I'm sure have all given us, like, real things to think about. Um, I want to move on to maybe a few different topics within this uh, conversation. Um, I, I think the Eucharist could be another good one um, to really talk about, you know, communion, the Lord's Supper. I believe that's something that happens every Mass. Is that correct? Yes. Which I actually, I think we've talked about before, Robin Jordan, we really believe in that idea of like, you know, the, the gathering of, of the church being centered around the Eucharist, not so much the message like it is in Protestant circles where the focus is about, you know, the three point sermon or like this, you know, really well-spoken speech about scripture, which of course teaching and preaching is, a, is important to the life of the believer, but the Eucharist we feel like oftentimes is kind of tacked on at the end of a service, like once a month (laughs) like oh and by the way communion you know and then it's also again very personal right very between you and god not so much the church and god Mm -hmm. um but obviously a big divide that that um a a protestant would have would be the belief that the bread and the cup turn into the literal you know um um uh, body and blood of christ which i believe catholics have a whole different view on so if you could say that 
Yes, transubstantiation. I can't even say it right. I'm just so undereducated. Transubstantiation um, and consubstantiation, and I constantly confuse the two. So I'm not yeah. even going to use those words. Cause perfect. perfect. Transubstantiation <laughs> is the Catholic one. Yeah, that's all I know. That's cool. Another one's good, you know. So uh, just kidding. But yeah, so if you can explain maybe some of the views on that, and uh, that, that'd be awesome. You're starting with all these things that I don't perfectly understand yet. So, <laughs> but um, the one thing I'm not clear about, I know the Catholics believe that the the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood. Uh, in some cases, I've heard Catholics say that by literal, they mean the essence of the thing is Jesus' flesh or blood, but it's still bread, even though it's like Jesus encapsulated in the thing. Um, but that sounds more like the, the I guess it was Luther, um, maybe somebody after Luther, I don't remember, but a different mm -hmm. view on that, which was con whatever. <laughs> so uh, I really, I'm not sure where the line is there. Mm -hmm. um, what I've come to uh, be convinced of is that something special is going on. Uh, it's not just bread and wine. It's either bread that sort of... Um, uh, you know, when you have the bread, you're in some more spiritual sense taking Jesus into you in a way I don't understand. Hmm. Um, one thing that I have wanted to ask a Catholic priest or teacher that I haven't yet is to say, if I eat this Eucharist and then God strikes me dead because I ate it and I'm not Catholic and they do a biopsy on me, are they going to find bread or flesh? And I don't know how they would answer that question. So... Hmm you know whether or not they would say yes it's flesh or no it's bread but it has the essence of jesus embedded in it what in whatever you know mystical way yeah that, that would sway my thoughts on this a lot hmm. uh one thing that i really found fascinating because the catholic church believes that it's the literal body and blood of christ they therefore believe that christ is physically present in the room with them during mass so where in my evangelical background, we all raise our hands and we're singing, you know, close our eyes and we sing, we bow down to you. <laughs> and that's it. Well, the Catholics actually believe Jesus is right there in the room and they literally bow down before their king. And the first time I did that, it was such an amazing experience. It just it really blew me away to just whether I believed that it changed, the, the bread changed or not knowing that they believe Jesus is there and all of us are bowing in his presence. It was just amazing. Where did that, where did that like shift for you? That was so like powerful based on like your previous experience. It just became more real to me that here is our King, whether he's here in spirit or uh, physically, whichever, you know, we all believe, I would think that, you know, when we go to church that Jesus in some way is present there with us and you know, we're two or three are gathered that whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, so to actually acknowledge, yes, he is here with us and then bow before him showing respect as our King. It's just, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm totally like Jesus and I can talk. We're, you know, very open friendship in a way, but he's also King. Like mm -hmm. I'm adopted as a son, which means we're family with Jesus, uh, but he's still the king. So I have to maneuver, you know, that relationship somehow. Yeah. So what were some of the reasons for you from kind of moving from the evangelical tradition over to, you know, attending a, 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 the Catholic church? What, what were some of the big factors for you that just kind of shifted you from point A to point B? Well, the, um, the priests, 
uh, I had a priest offer me Jameson and <laughs> I like, I like wine too much to be a good evangelical. <laughs> um, but no, I think I just, I reached a point where uh, I went to a church for a long time that taught me to study the Bible and understand the Bible and uh, started thinking for myself, reading the Bible. The more I read, the more I started questioning what the church was teaching me because it just didn't always line up. So uh, when I first met my wife, she started challenging me in a lot of ways. And just over a long period of time, I started being very open to things. A lot of the things that evangelicals are bothered by, they don't bother me anymore. I understand where they're coming from. And uh, one night my wife was praying the rosary and out of nowhere, you know, and I'm still, I was still at a place where I'm like a rosary. That's a little, you know, that's mm. like everything and whatever. Well, she was praying the rosary and she would stop and ask me questions. Like, I don't remember the specifics, but it's like, hey, when Jesus went over to this place, what would have happened when this happened? And she's coming up with these brilliant, amazing insights about the gospel and about the character of Jesus and all sorts of things. And it happened consistently that whenever she was praying the rosary, she'd have these great insights about scripture. And I started thinking maybe there's something to this. So a lot of things like that happened. And um, just, you know, going in with an open mind to conversations like this, uh, that helped me a lot. Uh, there's a passage in Acts that says that the church of Berea, the people in Berea, were uh, more noble than some other place. And it's because they listened eagerly to what Paul had to say. And then they went to scripture to see if it was true. Mm -hmm. Um I hear a lot of people quote that saying we should be like them. But what I actually see lived out is that they, I don't think people realize how heretical the things that Paul was teaching sounded to the Jews. Mm -hmm. And they were listening to something that sounded like heresy and they listened really listened and then went to scripture to see if it was true, not to prove it wrong. I think as evangelicals, we take the approach of if I can prove it wrong anywhere in scripture, then it's wrong. But mm -hmm. they actually went to scripture to say, is there any validity to this? Can it be true? Uh, and if you look for something hard enough in scripture or in the catechism or whatever, you'll find it, whether it's negative or positive. Hmm. I mean, so I get that. I mean, I get the idea of like, hey, like, you know, as I kind of grew, I was you know, more intrigued and even, you know, attracted to certain things about the Catholic church, but to like go from like, in one sense, kind of leaving one faith tradition and joining another one, especially one that is so at least on the outside, you know, in practice, so different and, and obviously in theological belief, controversial, I would say, and the, in the evangelical movement at, you know, at best, right. what was like the shift for you that, that, that was, that made it worth like you saying, you know what, even though I'm, I'm in Christian education, even though I am evangelical, it's worth it enough to move over to this tradition. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And really it came down to um, talking with my wife and seeing her live, live her faith out. The first time I went to her church, the priest during the homily, which a homily is like a, a really short sermon, like bearable, not two hours, but like <laughs> they get mad if it goes beyond 10 minutes, you know? Um, I love it. Yeah. During, <laughs> during this homily, the priest was saying to the congregation, it's not enough for you to just come to church on Sunday. You need to read your Bibles. You need to pray on your own. And he's going through all these things. And I'm like, wait, this is what Catholics think? <laughs> mm -hmm. I never do that. 
And I think what's happened over a long period of time is a lot of people are Catholic because they're Italian yeah. <laughs> or, or Irish. Right. And when that's the situation, you grow up in the church, you learn everything you're supposed to know to be a good Catholic, but you're a teenager staring at the girl or the guy next to you, not really listening. And that's what you learn. And that's my biggest critique of the Catholic church is not what they teach. It's that they don't teach. So, you know, the kids who aren't fully paying attention get everything they're supposed to know for the rest of their lives and it gets distorted. And in some parts of the world, superstition gets combined uh, and sometimes even voodoo gets combined in certain parts of the world and, you know, it gets really wacky. And so I think there's just a lot of misunderstandings, even among Catholics. Um, I don't think Catholics really understand their own faith the way they should. So as I started understanding things like um, uh, Mary, for instance, you know, yes, very Mary. big controversial thing, right? Because yeah. uh, um, two, two things are really important here. So one, uh, you mentioned the Eucharist. That's like the highlight of the Roman Catholic Mass. So you go there to take Jesus into your body, right? After the Reformation, the whole view of the Eucharist changed for the Protestants. So Mass is no longer about taking the, the Eucharist. It's about other things. And what do we have left without the Eucharist? We have scripture, we have singing, and you know a couple other odds and ends. And we still go through the motions with the little thing of bread and a little shot of grape juice and yeah. that's uh but once a month like you were saying it's kind of sporadic sort of an afterthought can i also say one thing real quick about yeah. that is it also and you would know the actual answer to this i've been told and from my limited reading early reformation luther still saw communion as like essential yes to like uh the mass and i think there was a divide between him and a guy named zwingli upon like how they viewed communion i think that's for like some of that split of the literal bread and body versus not kind of started to happen. So even early reformation still had that close to the center, if I'm not mistaken, so it's kind of evolved out of that over the years, but okay. Yeah. And it, it did happen somewhat early on in certain circles, but it, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. About okay. That. Um, well, so, uh, what was it? So yeah, worship in scripture, the word worship means serve. And we're told to praise God, which is more an emotional thing, and then worship God, which is to serve him, literally bow down. And what's happened then is in the Roman Catholic Mass, part of worship is to literally bow down when the presence of Jesus is in the room, and then you take Jesus into your body. And Well, when that's not the highlight of the church service anymore, then you have the Bible, and you have prayer, and you have singing that became known as worship when in fact it's not, it's, you know, you're praising God when you sing, uh, when you pray, you're talking to God, but we've kind of changed the meaning of the word worship. So now when people talk to Mary, I'll say prayer is just talking, right? You're talking to God. And um, when people talk to Mary, they pray to Mary in the Protestant view because worship has become this combination of prayer and singing and whatever, we feel like that means worship. So we look at it as worshiping Mary, when in reality, it's not worship at all. Worship is service, specifically service to somebody. So I think that's one of the things that changed. 
Um, the other dynamic of this is I love studying Old Testament and getting to really understand the best I can the culture, the worldview of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I learned was that uh, if you read carefully through Kings and Chronicles, there was a civil war. So the land of Israel was split. So you had Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The kings of Israel in the north are always listed, and it's there's a pattern. So-and-so became king. He reigned a certain number of years. Then he died. In, the, in Judah, it was the same, but it will say so-and-so became king. He reigned a certain number of years, and his mother's name was something, and he died. It always adds the mother's name. And what I've learned is that the mother had a title in Judah where the Northern kingdom did the typical king and queen thing, the Southern kingdom in Judah, they kind of said, well, we have many wives as king and which one becomes queen? Are they going to be backstabbing each other and struggling for superiority and all that? So instead of naming one of my wives, the queen, I named my mother, the queen. And that title was called the Gabira in Hebrew. So if you search the word in in, um, Hebrew, you'll find it in there, but it's, um, not used often, but that's why it says the king's name was this, and then the mother's name was this, because it's the Gabira, the king and the queen. So fast forward, Jesus' first miracle, somebody approached a poor woman with a reputation of adultery to ask for help. Like, why? And then she approached Jesus, and Jesus said, our time has not yet come. So he was talking about being glorified on the cross and taking his position as king. So he's basically saying by asking Mary for help, these people are saying, I don't believe you're an adulteress. I believe you are the mother of the king, the Gabira. So Jesus then was saying, why are they coming to us with this? I'm not yet glorified. I haven't become king yet. You're not Gabira yet, but whatever, you know, fill the jars and do all that stuff. So, when you understand Mary as the Gabira, the king's mother, a lot of what the Catholics do start, it just starts to make sense for me. Mm. And then understanding that we're not worshiping her, we're talking to her uh, just like we would talk to anybody else. It, it just, it took on a whole new life for me. Right? It fell into place and made sense. Well, that's, I mean, first off that I think just even what you said regarding that whole term of the queen, what's it called? A uh, Gabira. Is that right? You know, those little things about scripture are for me what like always turns things like on its head. Like, Oh, like that makes so much more sense in whatever context. Um, but with this one, so I have two questions about that kind of follow up. Number one, it's my understanding that the Catholic view of Mary is that she was sinless. I'm not sure if you can expand on that. And then I have one more question after that around praying to saints in general. So um, yeah, the view that Mary was sinless, I, I'm not there yet. So (laughs) that's one of the ones that I have trouble with. Um, my wife has explained it to me that, uh, God, just like God has taken our sin away, God was able to take her sin away the same way Jesus died once for all. Uh, and that, I have no problem with that view. It's the view of, um, if Mary had to be sinless and Jesus, had to be uh, born of a virgin to avoid original sin, then Mary had to be born of, you know, and right. it kind of goes from there. And I, you know, okay. I, I don't, 
personally, uh, I'm, I'm not at a place where I believe that yet. Cool. Um, still asking questions, but uh, that's one of the areas of disagreement for me. That's fair enough. So the other question I wanted to ask was around, you know, I don't think, I mean, honestly, I don't really have like a, a I can't support this like biblically, so to speak, of like, oh, I don't believe like you can pray to or talk to, you know, anyone who's not on this earth. But I always just kind of assume that like there's a gap that's big enough between like this world and the next that like whoever has passed on can't hear me and I can't hear them. Um, But obviously you mentioned, you know, uh, praying or what you would say would be talking to Mary or I know it's very common that to uh, ask the saints to pray on your behalf. I know also in the Anglican church, they also do this as well uh, when it comes to praying to saints. And um, yeah, my buddy Paul has explained it somewhat well, but we'll love just some of your, you know, your, um, I guess just thoughts and like what you've kind of come to understand. I'm sure again, being evangelical for a lot of years, when you think about getting Catholic, you think, okay, praying to people who, who are dead, that's crazy. But then again, I can't think of like a scripture verse from like, well, here's why we don't believe this. It's just kind of like assumed that, well, they're dead. You can't talk to them. You right. know? So. Yeah. And that, that was, um, you know, early on, that was a big question I had. And, uh, I, I think I really get it now where, it's not a question of are they are they worshiping these saints? They're, they're not. They're just talking to the saints. So the question isn't are you worshiping saints? The question is can they hear us? Like you said. Yeah. So um, when uh, just like if I was struggling, I could ask you for prayer. Nobody would think twice about it. And the view is these saints in heaven are asking God for prayer on our behalf, and they're physically closer than we are. So why not ask them for prayer? And if they can hear us then, you know, why not? Um, when Jesus was around, the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection uh, were challenging Jesus. And Jesus basically said, you, you don't understand the scripture. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all dead, but God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, meaning they're probably more alive than we are. Hmm. And uh, if that's the case, they're fully alive in heaven. They're in the presence of Jesus from you know, not that I was there and saw it, but, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's where they are. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I'm praying to them for help or for whatever, and they can't hear me, what have I lost? Yeah. Um, right. Right. So, yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I'll speak on behalf of all of our other listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I still have serious problems with praying to saints. Um, and I think it's more based off of, you know, the verse that we brought up earlier is um, there's one mediator between God and man. The commandments of Christ and the disciples is always to go directly to God through Christ or through the Holy Spirit. Um, and then I, I think... I, I've heard the, the arguments of, you know, you can pray to pray to the saints and they're closer to God um, and they can they can then lift your request to God. But even in their current state, I would I would question whether they so if if both Jordan and I started to talk to Tim and then we added six more people. And then 20 people after that, and we're all saying, hey, Tim, can you do this for me? I don't think Tim would be able to understand or comprehend all of the requests coming at him at one time. 
Maybe with some Adderall. <laughs> <laughs> and if it was something of importance, why wouldn't I just go to God who can hear all things and answer all things and is uh, omniscient and omnipresent? And I kind of think that same way about saints is we, I, I would imagine there's, they still have finite limitations. And um, so they couldn't answer or help with the requests of millions of people at a time. Um, and I would imagine there are millions of Catholics that are praying to Mary at this very <laughs> moment. <laughs> Probably. Um, and I, I've, I've heard it. I've heard it said before and I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent on it. Um, but the reason that I've heard that they pray to saints and especially Mary is because the scripture says that Mary was full of grace and she was overflowing with grace. And so she has grace that she can then share with people that pray to her. And I'm not sure if you have ever heard that or have given any thought to, to that either. No, I haven't actually heard that. Um, okay. But yeah, some of what you're saying, uh, the, the whole thing about logistics, having you know thousands of people praying at the same time, that makes a lot of sense. It's a great point. Um, if, that, if the Catholic view is correct, uh, the way I could see it working out is God, like we have our timeline and God <laughs> is outside of our timeline. Mm-hmm. So he created the timeline. So that's how like, you know, sins that I'll commit a year from now, God outside of time already put it on the cross. And David's sins, you know, he reached back in time and put it on the cross. So God being outside of time, I assume that the people who die are with God outside of time. And if it's outside of time, you're not bound by the limits of, um, you know, how many people at once are talking to you. Because if, you know, it's kind of like God hearing all the different prayers. Um, and, and I think it's because he exists outside of uh, our timeline. And that's all sorts of weird theology that I'll probably get. A- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just had the thought when, uh, when Rob was talking about the passage in Hebrews four, um, where it says, uh, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And just kind of, interesting from, I I kind of agree with Rob's perspective where, um, you know, maybe we could kind of figure out the logistics of how that might work (laughs) with the saints involved in that somehow. But we also have like this command here for us, you know, as believers to draw near, um, which I thought, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Definitely. And, um, you know, like I said, too, a lot of Catholics don't understand that, and and they do just go to the saints instead of God, and that's but that's not what they're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. To- I, yeah, that's a good point too. I think, um, yeah, like I said, maybe we could figure some of these things out and how they might work, but I f- think that sometimes there's a lot of um, there's danger in that, I guess, um, because when you understand it wrong or or you don't understand it. Um, maybe in the way that a priest would understand it or someone who's really studied these things, um, it can often be taken kind of in the wrong context or in the wrong way. And then you're left, you know, you're praying to a person who can't help you or you're, you know, you're kind of misguided in a way, not that, uh, 
Protestants or evangelicals can also be misguided. <laughs> I have a long list of Jordan. Uh, well, yeah. Although Jordan, I was going to kind of actually, I was going to kind of mention that of like, it just seems like it seems like there are just two different sides of this. Cause you're right. Like I think that the Catholic church has a real struggle to kind of like get its teachings out clearly. Right. Because there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of misinformation and it comes partly from, from the priests themselves, but also from, people kind of growing up Italian, so therefore being Catholic, but it also happens a ton on the Protestant side. I mean, I remember, excuse me, uh, years ago, Jordan, you and I did a study on that book, Unchristian, by the Barna Group, and it's mm-hmm. a whole just book on statistics of the evangelical faith in America, mm-hmm. and we were some of the studies and the findings were just shocking of how many people, quote-unquote, think that being a Christian is going to church on Sunday, you know, praise and worshiping with, like, modern songs, you know, praying your prayers, they walk down an aisle, and then boom, like, that's it, like, you're a Christian. And how we have, you know, part of, this, of why we even birthed this podcast was to have an honest dialogue around things that we think we're missing in the faith. And part of that as well on, our, on the Protestant side is just, a ton of misinformation of what it means to be a Christian, right? Or even our view sometimes of scripture is so like post enlightenment, post reform, post, you know, just modern, you know, and it's like, we miss a lot of like the, um, the richness of scripture as well. And I think that it's kind of interesting because you're kind of looking at two sides of like the same coin in a sense, because I think about the Catholic church is like very steep in tradition to the point where in the limited, uh, admittedly limited reading I've done, they put tradition pretty equal to like the importance of scripture, importance of like you know um, uh, what's it called the papacy or papacy? Is that correct? The magisterium. When like, I was doing my MDiv, uh, my Master of Divinity, I had an oral final exam, and I kept calling it the Popehood. <laughs> and the big kept the correcting me, and I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> what's it called? The papacy. All right, the papacy. So, you know, the papacy also, they, from again, what I understand, very equal to scripture and tradition. There's a huge focus on that tradition. And, you know, I got to be honest, on one side of me almost appreciates that because a lot of these big questions are already answered, right? Like, what is discipleship? Well, I'm sure the church has had millennia of people, you know, that they're able to look back and say, actually, the church has agreed that this is discipleship, right? And then the other side, though, in the Protestant movement is, I feel like we're all, we're almost always like trying to redefine our terms. Like, well, what's real community? Well, what's real discipleship? Well, what's really church supposed to be like? Well, what is worship supposed to be like? Well, okay, we agree on this, but then there's like 3,000 other denominations that have a whole different view on this. Or, you know, we're always trying to reform or reinvent the wheel, and we kind of get stuck in our own um, you know, uh, newness where it's like, Oh, like God's doing something new all of a sudden, like, wow, we, you know, our culture, this is so much more modern. I mean, we've talked about this before, Robin Jordan, you know, I play drums at my church. It's very quote unquote modern, you know, but, but we're always asking like, well, are we like being biblical? Like what, what does church really look like? So I feel like either way you're kind of in a jam, you know, where either you're almost stuck in, in one way where everything is based on tradition and there is no room to adjust or, you're always trying to rethink everything, even the most like basic view of like the most basic tenets of the faith, like salvation or 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 discipleship. You know? I have two things to say to that real quick, Tim. Um, the first one, because you were saying about like the, the the kind of two sides of the same coin, like someone who claims to be Catholic not understanding what the Catholic Church actually teaches, and then someone who might be an evangelical Christian not really understanding. Um, 
you know, like the example you gave of that unchristian book. And that was really based around like uh, having a biblical worldview. And there were like certain kind of tenets that they laid out as to like, this is what we would consider a biblical worldview. And they're super basic stuff. Um, the difference I see between those two sides of the coin, as you put it, is that when an evangelical Christian in that uh, situation, like with the unchristian book, is not understanding, they're not understanding really the teachings of the Bible um, and what it means to have a biblical worldview. And they're kind of saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian or I adhere to this religion or this spirituality. And then they're not understanding what that uh, is teaching. Um, and the difference I think that I've noticed, and again, this is, I mean, I did a little bit of reading and just some, you know, basic background stuff. So uh, if I quote something from the catechism or the, you know, Council of Trent, it's because I'm <laughs> just looking it up right now. Um, it's, it's not a deep understanding of the Catholic <laughs> teachings. But uh, so far in some things that I've been reading, what it seems to me is that when a person who is Catholic or claims to be Catholic maybe doesn't understand what the Catholic Church is teaching, they often will say something like, you know, if we're talking about justification by faith uh, alone versus justification by faith and works, um, they might say, well, you know, it's not really the justification. The works isn't part of the justification. You know, it's, it's uh, by faith and then the works have this other role to play in that. Um, but then you go and read something like, uh, here's a good example in the Council of Trent. Um, it says, if anyone says that righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. So kind of like uh, almost that misunderstanding kind of, uh, I don't know, like I feel like the, the, what the Catholic teaching is, almost feels further from the biblical teaching to me. Um, when I look at something like that, a statement like that, it feels like the person who's not understanding the teaching might be trying to uh, kind of gloss over a Catholic teaching in order to make it sound more biblical. Whereas in the example you gave, the evangelical believer is just not understanding the biblical teaching. <laughs> Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah, I want to give Russ a chance to at least respond sure. to that first. Yeah, that was long. I have another thought, but you can respond to that first if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't know church history or the uh, the councils yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. I, I don't either. Think. I just and you're quicker on the keys than I am. So. Uh, but one thing you said before about. Um, you know, this, the praying the saints thing, it's not safe, not a safe teaching, um, just to play devil's advocate mm -hmm. with that view. Um, in before the enlightenment, there were some great men of God in the Catholic church who believe, who did not think mm -hmm. that the lay people should be able to have Bibles and read the Bible. Uh, a lot of times we think it was only the corrupt priests because they didn't want all their corruption exposed. And, but there were actually um, really good, you know, great men of God, great priests and leaders who thought it would be horrible for lay people to get 
the Bibles in their hands. And it's because there was so much illiteracy when the printing press, you know, uh, Gutenberg's printing press came along, people weren't literate at the time and they weren't trained. They didn't go to college or seminary or whatever. So here they are learning to read, reading the Bible. They're going to misunderstand things and develop heresies. And in hindsight, as much, I mean, I teach the Bible. I love, I right. want people to have a Bible. So I don't agree with that view, but, um, on their behalf, I would say that now we have, what, 2,000 denominations because we can't agree on how to interpret the Bible. So, you know, that fear was actually lived out, that it was dangerous and heresies spread through the church. Um, my, I'm saying that not to say anything about should we or shouldn't have the Bible. It's more about, I don't think God is afraid of doing things that are dangerous. Hmm. I don't think he wants to be safe a good point. That's a good point, Russ. Um, something that we've talked about on this podcast before as well. Um, you know, <laughs> it's funny because like, I, and I don't, I, I want to be careful in my words here because I'm like you, I fully think that people should have access to the Bible. But like you said, it, if you don't know how to read it, you can really come away with some really crazy views. And we see that, right? Yeah. I mean, we see everyone from, Benny Hinn to Westboro Baptist, you know, all claiming to be like in the faith, all with like way different views on the same book. And we're also reading a book that obviously was not originally written in English and was translated from a whole different cultural time. Now, obviously God preserves his word. I think that, that, that the gospel will always be preserved in, in its most simplest form, right? I think, I think anyone can pick it up and read that to a degree, but you can very easily build some really crazy theologies off of just reading the Bible, how I think I was kind of taught, which was you just read it literally word for word. Like everything in that book is meant to be taken 100% literally. And what I've found, I think Jordan and Rob have found to a degree as well, is that as we are growing and we're exposed to people like uh, Tim, like the Bible Project of a, a much more, I would say, bigger picture and like holistic view, like what's happening in scripture, it kind of messes with your head. Like, oh, like I never knew that salvation was a bigger term than just me to God directly, you know? So I can understand what you're saying. I think that that there is definitely a danger that maybe we're a little more numb to because we're in this tradition and we are kind of self-seekers. Like we want to know more. But I think a lot of people who just take the word of the pastor at face value, you know, and just go once a week can really get like some very weird beliefs and not even know why they believe them. They've, they've, they've just been taught to believe it. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, anything else you guys want to add? Yeah. So I, I kind of blew off yes. your other question. So are you good on time, Russ? I, I'm, I'm good. I'll okay. So I'm not sure. This is, I don't want to sh- uh, cut ourselves short, but I know it's getting late for all of us. So, um, I had one other thought in, uh, cause when Tim was talking, you said you brought up the idea and of, um, uh, tradition being uh, held in the same uh, authority as biblical as the Bible, um, and that was something that I came across in kind of reading some stuff in preparation for this um, that I thought was really interesting. And maybe you can um, respond to this some, Russ. But it was just kind of for me, and, and not really knowing, uh, not understanding necessarily the idea of. Uh, um, like holy tradition or sacred tradition, um, I think is the term. Uh, and just kind of thinking like, well, the tradition in 
the Catholic church has not always been, you know, if you look back in the history of it, I guess is what I'm thinking. Like, it's not always been that great. I mean, we've had, you've had, right. I mean, like everyone obviously points to like the crusades and, you know, they point, there's obviously there's popes along the way that have, you know, been really not great. And then even in recent years with all like different things coming up and, uh, and like you said earlier, Tim too, like, obviously we're not saying that like, uh, the church is perfect. You know, we're not going to say that about either the evangelical church or the Catholic church, but just kind of like, um, if you're going to look back, I understand the one side of it. And in evangelical Christianity, we certainly do this too, where we look back and at the teachings of, you know, the church fathers and, and really smart people and theologians throughout history. And we get definitely glean, uh, wisdom and insight from that. And just kind of the beliefs, traditional beliefs of the church. Um, but I guess for me, where the disconnect is, is how is that I don't personally believe that should be held in the same authority as the Bible. Um, and I guess maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Like, how do the Catholics, like, yeah, yeah you can go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I personally agree with a lot of what you're saying about this. Um, I struggle with the, the role of tradition, uh, or not even the role, but the emphasis that's placed on tradition. Uh, for clarity, though, might you know, in some ways I see this as semantics, but uh, the way the church views this, scripture is taken much, uh, you know, it's like, I guess I would say like a higher place in the hierarchy than tradition. But in places where you could interpret the scripture a bunch of ways, how do you know which way is right? And that's where they mm. go to tradition. So they kind of read scripture and value scripture through the lens of tradition. And I, I think it was Chesterton. Chesterton said, um, uh, the tradition is basically like the church as a whole coming together to try to figure things out. But the people from farther back in history get to vote mm. as well. So, and I, I think that helped me with it a lot. Um, but there are things in the traditions that I question and, you know, so it's a, yeah. that's a hard one. I definitely don't want to speak like, uh, you know, as like, oh, like, you know, tradition is like the end all be all. But I, I, I think the older I get, the more I can appreciate the, um, the view of like the tradition, like what, what you kind of said of like, but they get to vote too, because there are definitely, you know, especially, I, I feel like it's especially in this time in history, like things are moving so quick and they're changing so fast and, you know, it's amazing because in the age of we have access to the most information ever, um, we're also the most confused. <laughs> we're probably more confused than ever about everything. I mean, and I think part of that is because they're, we're discovering that like everyone's opinion is public and there are a lot of smart people who have different views on different things. And so it kind of, with my head, it makes me think, well, like, you know, I've always been taught there's only there's only one way for all this stuff, but now I'm hearing like ten thousand different ways. So like, are they all wrong except for the one out of the ten thousand, or is there like maybe like are maybe some things a little more gray than I was previously like you know um, exposed to? I think this is where the tradition can really come handy of like, well, some of these people have actually thought through this in their time and have landed on like some really amazing insights that. I think maybe the millennial generation, really my generation is 
very quick to, to dismiss because anything old is seen as like dated and not as relevant. But in reality, there's so much wisdom in, in some of those people and what they had to say that they could help us greatly now. <laughs> so I feel like we are very quick to be like, well, this is new and cutting edge and we kind of know it all because of Google, you know, but the problem with that is that you can't get deep on things, right? You read like, you know, we, we, we've all done it. If you're arguing with someone on social media, you Google the article to get that, 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 that supports your point. You copy and paste the link. Then you post it like somehow you're like an expert on the topic, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe you have, but I definitely have way more that, that I want to admit uh, on, you know, on this podcast. But we've done that, and what it does is it makes us feel like we're an expert in something. But in reality, we took someone else's words, read like the first three paragraphs, say, yeah, this is right, and then just posted it, right? So we can't go very deep especially with like our, you know, our news cycles and stuff. So um, I say all that because the, tr the tradition, I think I'm almost starting to rediscover for the first time, like even the idea of like a church calendar, I never really knew about that. And I'm like, wow, like this has been going on for like a over a millennia, you know, like this, this rhythm of church life that, that I think my um, current, you know, faith, tradition uh, kind of throws out for the sake of it being old or Catholic or like steeped in, in religion. Uh, but in reality, it's actually really healthy. Hmm. Was that Spurgeon quote that he was like, uh, you can be sure there's nothing new in theology except which is that, which is false. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess he's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you get that idea in Jude when when he writes that he wants them to contend for the faith which was mm. once for all delivered to the saints and i i think in that i've i would imagine there are some discrepancy that or gripes that evangelicals would have maybe wrongly so but um from what i understand um with the catholic church that the church is the one that interprets scripture and releases the traditions and says this is what we believe and this is how it should be um, and it's kind of handed down through the papacy through the bishops through the archbishops through the into the priests into the laity and i think that's where a lot of evangelicals would have a hard time because jude tells us well it's once for all delivered not to the church as a whole but it's actually delivered to the saints in general and it's I think that's why, you know, like Tyndale and all of those fought to get the the Bible transcribed and written into a common language for this purpose, so that the common laity, um, all people could understand what was the faith that was delivered to them and could ingest it for themselves. Yeah. I'll share one of my big struggles with the, the tradition. Um, in the, the New Testament was written almost entirely by Middle Eastern Jews. And they would come from that worldview. And uh, the Pharisees followed the synagogue model of worship. And uh, so that was spreading. You know, the early church, they would meet in the synagogues. And uh, it wasn't until the, really the Christians and Jews split that they stopped doing that. But that was the model that they followed. And as time went on, more and more Gentiles came into the church. So the church started out almost entirely Jewish. And then as Greek thinking people came into the church, 
a lot of the traditions became more Greek and the understandings of things became more Greek. And I suspect that a lot of the early tradition in the Catholic Church was Greek thinking sort of infiltrating uh, you know, Middle Eastern thinking. I think that's probably where we get some of the ideas of heaven and hell that, that, you know, what I need, you know, the goal in life is for me to die and go to heaven. And it's not. And we all know that if somebody gets, you know, cancer, you don't say, Oh, congratulations, you're going to get to heaven. You know, it's, we know that this life is good and it's not just to get to heaven, but Greek thinking says, here's the physical world and it's evil. There's the spiritual world and it's good. And, so I just, I don't know where that thinking crept into tradition and whether, you know, how much it's influenced the church. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms that I would love to have you back on for, to, uh, seriously to discuss because I have, you know, um, yeah, it would just be really cool. I, I you know, these topics are um, humongous and like they're deep, but I, don't know, I just feel like they're very essential to the Christian faith, especially more so ever than now. Like if there is, like if there was ever a time, now is the time to really equip the saints, <laughs> you know, because there is so much access to so much disinformation. And there's, at least in, again, and how I grew up, there's definitely a sense of like, how we read the Bible is the only way to read this book. And if you don't read it this way, like you're, you know, if you're not reformed, like forget it, like you're just missing out on the boat and, you know, yeah. and there's all kinds of, it doesn't die from the boat, but it still happens. Yes. Yes. And I think there's all <laughs> kinds of, you know, things that I've had to wrestle with. I know Jordan and Rob have with, you know, just things that we've been taught by well many people who truly, I mean, we've all have, have had great families who have taught us so well, but there's a lot of things I think that we have, like what you kind of said earlier in, in this episode, that as you read in scripture, you're like, well, that doesn't match up with like what I've been taught. And I think we found that too, where I'm like, okay, if there's like this big theme of like God restoring all things and that he loves people, but then I've been taught about these other certain like doctrines that like just don't seem to, work well with that like how does this all work you know and i would really at some point like to have you back on to go into some of those other topics of scriptures i know you really are passionate about getting like that just um i would maybe a more holistic like view of like scripture that like hey it's not just about like three verses to build your theology but there's really a story happening in this book and it's mm -hmm. super important for how we treat each other now and you know and, and how we live now which i think could be great yeah. um, i wanted to ask you one last question before we wrap up because we are definitely close out of time. I, and I want to hit this one last thing, baptism. Um, you know, I know that um, infant baptism is big. I know that uh, the Catholic view of baptism obviously is different. Um, and honestly, I think that maybe if I'm being honest, I don't agree a ton with the evangelical view of like baptism kind of being like, oh, whenever you kind of get around to it, because it seems like it's pretty mandated in scripture of like, when you're saved, like get baptized, like immediately. And I think we are like, well, wait till for like our Sunday service in three months, when you are baptism Sunday, you know, can you hang on, you know, instead of just like, like getting it done. So would you, I mean, I'm not sure if you tend to agree with infant baptism, but if you do, if you could explain that briefly and then just your kind of view on, on the Catholic view of baptism. Sure. Yeah. There are parts of the Catholic view of baptism that I don't buy right now. Hmm. Um, uh, I won't go into those so much, but uh, infant baptism never made sense to me until I started, I started understanding the Middle Eastern culture and the worldview. Because again, it's not about me getting to heaven. Um, in the Middle East, well, let me start here. In the United States, my father, is an, he is retired, but he was an auditor for the state. 
I'm a teacher because I, I could go to college and do what I wanted to do. Uh, in the Middle East, if my father were an auditor for the state, I'd be an auditor for the state, period. That's the family business. And I would never question it. Uh, hmm. People ask me who I am. It's my father and my grandfather and, you know, down, down the line forward and backward. So with instant infant baptism, obviously the infant can't make a choice to follow Jesus, but that child's identity is the father's identity and the grandfather's identity. So when you have your children baptized, the thought is we are Christians. Hmm. Right? So it's, it's a Western thing that really it doesn't make hmm. sense. Wow. That's, uh, again, there it is. It's just very helpful. <laughs> That's, oh, again, that makes, I mean, whether you agree or not still, at least you can understand where it's coming from, right? So, And that's really, with all of these things, that's my position. It's, uh, it's, not, that, um, it's not that I agree with everything the Catholic Church says. I, I don't, which is why I haven't, um, you know, I can't publicly say I'll adhere to the teachings because uh, I'm just not there. But I've gained tremendous respect for the Catholic Church and the people who are really living out their faith in the Catholic Church, they, they seem to really get it and they're the real deal. So, um, you know, I have issues, but I have issues with the evangelicals, and I think it's worth talking through instead of just pointing fingers and church bashing. What do you think is, um, you know, um, the future of, like, the church for on both sides? Do you think that, that they can come together? Do you think it's just, like, so hard to get, like, solid theology these days? Like, what, what's, your, what's your take? We are so divided. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, only God could bring us together, but he's God. If he wants it to happen, he'll do it. Mm. You know? He's bigger than our disagreements. Um, I don't see it happening, but yeah. <laughs> uh, right now, I think culturally we're divided on almost every topic, including yeah, pretty much. Uh, when the conservatives and liberals in our government come together, <laughs> that's when it'll happen. Yeah, and uh, yeah, when Jesus returns. Biblical prophecy and talks about the lion with the lamb. You know, like when that happens, you know it's really coming. So uh, that'll be a great sign. Which is which? Yeah, yeah. Which is we all know conservatives are the lion. I guess more like Jesus. That's another you know? podcast. Jordan, what do you have to say about infant baptism? Oh, I was just thinking in your description, Russ. It uh. Right just reminded me more of like the evangelical practice of like baby dedication <laughs> um, and just kind of saying yeah. like, you know, we're in this yeah. uh, together and we're going to raise our child um, right. in this uh, uh, tradition that we have of honoring Jesus. Um, yeah. I would agree with that. I would agree with it that far. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but, yeah, I guess you're Catholic now. There, I mean, there is a definite clear teaching of believers' baptism. You know, after they believed and they were baptized in a sense, identified with the Lord mm -hmm. Jesus. And Tim, I think to your point, why I we 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 don't understand the culture, mm -hmm. and I think then we don't understand why the practice was taught. I think in that day it was such a serious thing to claim Christianity that you, your life was on the line. The moment you said, I am a Christian. Um, I am identified with Christ. Your life was on the line. And so I think <laughs> to, to underscore the seriousness and the solemnity of, of faith in Christ, I almost wonder if it was preached in the gospel like that. 
So when Philip came to the Ethiopian eunuch, we don't we don't read about Philip ever talking to him about <laughs> baptism. But he says, hey, there's some water. Can I go get baptized? Where would he have learned that? I would imagine in the gospel that Philip preached was the Lord commanded that those who believe in him will be baptized. And so he's like, I believe. Can I get baptized? Because I want to be identified with him despite the cost. The culture of the, our Western culture is you can be identified with Jesus. You can be identified with the spaghetti monster in the sky. Dude, do whatever you feel you need to do. Well, Rob, I mean, I, I, I interrupt you. I do think that when you become a Christian in the States, you face major persecution. Like, um, you know, um, let's see, what can't you do? Um, actually, I guess I guess you really can do anything you want. Still. I guess Obama's America hasn't ruined Christianity after all. Um, I, I couldn't. I'm sorry. I had to get it in. I'm just, I, you know, people are always being persecuted because the government. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I hear you. And, and I think that's why we have that delay now where, you know, somebody's a believer and then 16 years from now, they're like, Hey, I think I'm ready to be baptized right. where I, I think it should be closer together where, Hey, this is, this is my faith in Christ. I want to be identified with him and this is what he yep. commanded us to do. So do it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not something that we should just be sitting around and being like, well, the Lord said do it, but I'll kind of do it when I feel like it. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, amazing thoughts on all sides, you know, Russ, it was really great having you on and giving really invaluable insight to so much. I mean, we obviously hit a lot of different things, but, um, I wish we had like seven hours. I wish we had the listener base to listen for seven hours, but we're not the Joe Rogan podcast. We don't do four hour episodes. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that we can definitely get you back on in the future because I feel like we can go into a whole other host of topics, um, Old Testament theology, uh, even the idea of what is salvation. I mean, these are questions that maybe we take for granted because we think that we know, but maybe on a scriptural level, um, we maybe have like not gotten the whole picture. You know, not necessarily that, that we're wrong, but maybe we've just gotten one square out of the, out of the whole piece, you know, so um, yeah, it was really great having you on. Great. I had a great time with you all. Thank Good. you. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Um, you know, we have, I, I want to mention one thing um, because, you know, we're, we're real fancy on this podcast, but me, uh, Robin Jordan, we did actually have a meeting about this podcast and we're going to do our Woo! best to commit. I'm, I'm getting ready people. Not bi-monthly, not monthly, not even bi-weekly, but weekly episodes of this podcast. So we have a shared calendar now. We have guests lined up. So this is it. We're going big. We're going famous. It's happening. Um, and we're going to start our brand new subscription tier. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> premium. Yeah, the, for premium for premium subscribers, you know. But uh, you're all you're all premium. Yes, you're all premium. Uh, but thank you for real everyone for listening and. Um, we love your feedback. We love um, everything you guys tell us. So stay tuned for future episodes and we will see you guys next time. Thanks for checking out the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus. But where's the water? What's your plan?